Hello, CFL fans and loyal degenerate gamblers. You're tuned in to another episode of Third Down Gamble, the CFL betting podcast. I'm your host, Kyle McMahon, here to guide you to the CFL betting window for another week. I'll break down everything we saw in a bit of a subdued week number two and get you set for week three, which provides us with four more exciting betting opportunities. Before I get to all that, I'll let you know that if you want to get in touch with the show, an email to cflbettingpodcast at gmail.com is the best way to do so. And all your subscribes and likes on whichever podcast platform you listen on is greatly appreciated. Okay, week two. We've now got two game samples on everyone besides the Alouettes and the Red Blacks. So this is the point where preseason projections start to wane in their importance and what we're actually seeing on the field becomes a better indication of where these teams are really headed the rest of the season. Who are the risers and who are the fallers? Well, the BC Lions are probably moving their way up most people's power rankings after they went into Calgary on Thursday night and shut down the Stampeders to the tune of 15-9. The Lions' pass defense was the story of this game, picking off Bo Levi Mitchell four times and holding one of the CFL's top quarterbacks to an utterly lousy 41% success rate through the air. After leaning pretty heavily on the run in Week 1, Calgary, for whatever reason, used it rather sparingly in this one, despite matching their 64% sex rate from Week 1 when their backs did see the ball. They put themselves into way too many second and long situations with first down incompletions, and the BC defense completely smothered them in those knowing passing situations, getting a reasonable amount of pressure up front and grading out at 65% effective against the pass on second down. The Lions' offense was not particularly efficient themselves, but when they were, they made a count hitting on several long balls and picking up good chunks of yardage on most of their possessions, even if they didn't result in a whole lot of points. We could talk about all sorts of things from this game, in which our best bet of under 48.5 cashed easily, but seeing as it provided us with one of our first coaching debacles of the young season, maybe I'll take a couple minutes to talk about that, with both these bench bosses making highly questionable moves in the closing moments. Dave Dickinson elected to gamble on third and a couple at the BC 23-yard line with four and a half minutes left and his team trailing by nine. All right, fair enough, I'd do the same, but why, on the next set of downs, and after they managed to burn well over a minute off the clock, would you then kick a field goal in the exact same third and short scenario? You know, just a few yards closer to the end zone. All that did was waste precious time. However, the Stampeders did get thrown a lifeline moments later by Rick Campbell, who decided to pass the ball on second and three after his offense had just run their way down inside the Calgary 40-yard line. The Stampeders were out of timeouts at that point. Clock is running, about 90 seconds remaining. And your run game looks strong. So stop the clock with an incompletion. Send your struggling kicker out to miss another makeable field goal. Terrible game management. And that's before even examining the decision to run on third and six instead of punting with 30 seconds left after Calgary turned the ball right back over at the exact same spot on the field on their very first snap of the possession after the missed field goal. The fact that Calgary still ended up with a Hail Mary attempt from the BC half of the field after the Lions scrimmaged from the Stamps 40 with just over a minute left is rather incredible, but also the most CFL thing ever. Overall, through two weeks though, I'm not making huge adjustments 
For either team, I was higher on BC than most coming into the season. I had them pegged as a playoff team in the West, and I've seen nothing to dissuade me from that projection now that Mike Riley suddenly appears much healthier than was led on by the Lions organization. One and one was the goal, starting off with two tough divisional road games, and they accomplished that. Over five wins on their futures ticket is looking pretty good in the early going. Calgary is definitely a surprise at 0-2, but for the most part, I think the Stampeders have been done in with correctable errors rather than overall lack of ability. This isn't going to be the team of years past, but they've made some uncharacteristic mistakes on special teams, and Bo Levi Mitchell has been just plain careless with the football. And all that said, both losses were there for the taking in the fourth quarter. At 0-2 in a 14-game season, they're going to be hard-pressed now to make a push for the top of the division, but I still think this is a team that can get right if they rectify some mistakes, so I'm not writing off the over-seven-wins futures ticket on the stamps just yet, is what I was all set to say until the news dropped just in the last couple hours that Bo Levi is heading to the six-game injured list with a broken bone in his leg. Obviously, that changes everything, and I'll discuss the immediate implications of that momentarily when we look at our Stamps Alouettes preview. Moving on to Toronto-Winnipeg. Probably not a huge adjustment for me on either of these two teams yet. One thing is clear after Friday night, Winnipeg's defense is the top dog in this league right now, and the edge rush tandem of Willie Jefferson and Jackson Jeffcoat is looking almost unblockable with five-man protection. McLeod Bethel-Thompson got the start for Toronto in this one after a nice outing in Calgary the previous week, but once again, the consistency just isn't there with this guy. This was a great opportunity for him to grab a firm hold on the starting job for the Argos, and he just did not rise to the occasion, missing several open receivers through two and a half quarters of scoreless play before Nick Arbuckle got inserted and immediately led the offense into the end zone. Now, Arbuckle wasn't able to get the job done in the end either, as Toronto put up just those seven points. The offense did seem to have a little more urgency. Passes were going somewhat where they needed to be, and he just might be the man going forward now that McLeod Bethel-Thompson has faltered again. The biggest thing that has to be talked about in this game, though, is the absolutely ridiculous number of penalties the Argonauts took all night long. I almost lost count by the end of the game. I think it was 15 or 16 for around 150 yards. A couple of those were probably declined, but it's very, very difficult to win a football game under those conditions. I mean, half that amount of penalties is problematic, and I just don't understand, even with the lack of preseason, how a professional football team can manage to be that undisciplined over the course of 60 minutes in all three facets of the game. And all that spoiled what was a pretty nice outing from John White running the ball and a very strong effort up front by the Argos defense, keeping Brady Oliveira in check for most of the evening. White did fumble on his own side of the field in the fourth quarter, though, and that proved to be a real backbreaker in this game. But on the whole, I think the Argos have to be quite pleased with his performance through two games, and they may finally have a running game after a couple years of it being non-existent. Winnipeg's offense is definitely missing Andrew Harris right now, particularly his pass-catching ability out of the backfield. And this is something that could become a problem quickly if their defense ever has an off night. The dink and dunk has got the job done so far, and it may continue to do so if the Bombers' defense ensures that their offense is playing with the lead most of the game and starting drives with good field position. 
But Zach Caleros completed 32 passes on Friday for less than 300 yards. Now, 20 points on the board isn't poor by any means based on what we've seen throughout the league the first two weeks, but 14 of those points came from drives that began inside the Toronto 40 and were aided by bonehead Argonaut penalties. And I do have concerns about this Bomber offense if they ever found themselves trailing by more than a few points. I agreed with the market coming in that Winnipeg was looking like an 8 or 9 win team. They've taken care of business so far, and they've done it without their best offensive player. So I think the outlook for the Bombers remains quite strong. And they're the team to beat in the CFL right now until proven otherwise. I was fairly bullish on the Argonauts over 6.5 win total. The rash of injuries they suffered in camp dampened my enthusiasm a little bit, but they came through those first two projected tough road games at 1-1, one and one, so that's reasonably encouraging. We got our first look at the Alouettes on Saturday night, the last team to take the field in 2021, and they looked excellent in all areas in laying a beatdown on the Edmonton Elks at Commonwealth Stadium. The Owls were getting five points in this game when the line finally opened on Saturday morning. This did get that down to four, but the market was definitely lower on this team than I was. I thought that line was very generous considering how bad Edmonton looked in their opener. And it didn't take long for Montreal to demonstrate that they were no fluke in 2019, taking it to the Elks on offense, defense, and special teams in a first half that saw them build a 17-point lead. NFL Mondo Sewell didn't take a selfish roughing penalty that negated a pick six. This game would definitely have been over at halftime if it wasn't already. William Stanback, he got a brief look from the NFL with the Raiders between this year and last, uh, you know, the last played season. He picked up right where he left off, carrying this Montreal offense with a power run game. 54% efficiency on the ground over a large volume of carries is very good throwing a few explosive runs, and this was enough to give Vernon Adams a pretty light workload as he only needed to attempt seven passes in the entire second half of the football game. I thought Adams looked very composed in the pocket. He used his legs when he needed to to avoid negative plays. Just one sack surrendered on the evening, and while Montreal was nothing special in the air, just 48% efficiency, they didn't commit a turnover, and they forced Edmonton to respect the deep ball early, connecting on a couple of bombs in the first half that set them well on their way to a dominating victory. The Elks, oh boy, this team has left a lot of disappointed people in their wake. The market was very bullish on them coming into the season, mainly on the strength of what we expected to be an explosive offense, and they have been anything but through eight quarters of football with just one garbage time touchdown to their name thus far. We knew coming into this season that there were going to be some big-name players that aged out during the two-year layoff, and Trevor Harris appears to be one of them. In the CFL in this day and age, defensive lines are just too fast and athletic to succeed with a stationary pocket passer, and Harris has been a statue back there so far. It's always possible there's an underlying injury, but this guy was never the most mobile to begin with, and at this point, he just plain looks old and slow. You don't need a runner back there, but you do need a guy who can escape the pocket or sidestep the first rusher, and that just isn't happening with Harris, who took four more sacks on Saturday night. And by midway through the second quarter, the Alouettes were just teeing off against an offensive line that had a batting outing themselves and getting backfield penetration on just about every passing down. This Elks offense wasn't actually all that bad on first down at 55% efficient, 
James Wilder had a few explosive runs, but second downs were a disaster for this unit, just 43% efficiency. And for a team with Darrell Walker and Greg Ellingson in the receiving core, their ability to stretch the field was nowhere to be found for the second game in a row. Over five and a half, Elks wins was the most popular bet on the board. And if early returns are any indication, it'll be the books getting paid on that one as this team looks poor in just about every area of the field right now, including special teams where they earn the distinction as the first team to give up a return touchdown in 2021. We'll need to see the Alouettes out there a second time before we make too drastic of an adjustment, but through 60 minutes, I would argue they looked as good as any team in the CFL, and we'll see how the market treats them in Game 2 as they will head down the road to Calgary this upcoming Friday. Now, if the Elks aren't the CFL's biggest disappointment so far, it's because the Hamilton Tiger Cats are, as they fall to 0-2 after getting thumped by Saskatchewan in the nightcap on Saturday. Hamilton started this season off with a lot of injuries. They don't seem to be getting any luck in that department at all, as we saw several more players go down on Saturday. But boy, oh boy, I don't think anyone could have predicted their offense that simply moved the ball at will back in 2019 could possibly look this bad. The Ticats closed out a 30-8 loss with just a 32% offensive efficiency rating. To explain these stats a little more clearly, since you'll be hearing these terms often on this podcast, a 50% efficiency rating is generally the baseline, as you might expect. Below 45, and you're probably struggling. Below 40% is downright bad, and anything under 35% gets you in the conversation for a seasonal worst in that department. To give you some perspective on on what 32% is. Jeremiah Masoli looked bad again. Dane Evans came in in relief when this game was pretty much out of reach, but the problems with this offense for me begin along the line, and it's clear that Hamilton has not been able to absorb the losses of Riker Matthews and Mike Filer, and these guys are, are losing the battle in the trenches big time right now. By the second half, we saw Hamilton in max protect sets on standard passing downs just to keep the riders' pass rush at bay, And when you're dedicating seven personnel to blocking, good luck finding open receivers. And indeed, most of the balls thrown downfield were into blanket coverage and easily defended by a Saskatchewan secondary that looked much sharper in this game than their season opener. They did manage to hang around in this game. Hamilton did for about three quarters. And if Basoli doesn't fumble deep in his own end with under a minute left in the first half, maybe they keep this respectable. But by and large, they're... Defense had few answers to Cody Fajardo's dual threat game, and Saskatchewan probably could have really made this look ugly if they'd kept their foot on the gas in the late stages. Fajardo looks like the best quarterback in the CFL right now, both as a runner and a passer, and if there were any doubts about his ability to repeat 2019, they've uh, they've been laid to rest. And I'll, I'll admit I was kind of taking a wait-and-see approach with, with this guy myself, but he's he's just looked great so far. His awareness in the pocket has been fantastic. His release has been superb. And anytime he took off to run, Hamilton had no answer whatsoever. Simone Lawrence was MIA at the linebacker position all night. In the offensive line, my number one concern with the Riders coming in with almost entirely new personnel has been downright excellent through two viewings. 
I was willing to fade the riders early, largely on this basis, but they've established that they're just as big a threat to win the Western Division as the Blue Bombers are right now, and I must say my under 7.5 wins ticket on this team is now on very thin ice. So major upgrade for the riders in terms of the power rankings, and Hamilton has quickly descended down into Edmonton and Ottawa territory. They go on by this week, probably good timing to try and sort out some of their issues. But football is, you know, probably the most, uh, you know, out of all the major sports, probably the most what have you done for me lately type of scenario. And if if you're waiting around for that 15-3 and three Hamilton team from 2019 to show up, I think you're going to be left out in the cold. This team just doesn't have the horses right now with all the departures and injuries. And I, I know it's early yet. This team found themselves as a solid Grey Cup favorite just two weeks ago, and they don't even look like a playoff team at the moment. And this season is already at risk of slipping away in Steeltown if they don't make a big step forward in the next couple of weeks. All right, so it seems the scenario I feared of the market-making books continuing to keep their numbers to themselves throughout the week is coming to fruition again here. In the past, I could provide some market analysis on these opening lines as they tended to move throughout the week. Unfortunately, we're faced with a situation now where you need to be at the ready about eight hours before kickoff on game day. Maybe that eventually changes and we, we start getting some earlier lines out at major books. Uh, but for now, the game previews are going to take on a bit more of a speculative nature out of necessity. So I'll probably dedicate a little bit more time to breaking down the current form of all nine teams and the game recaps to try and suss out who we might think is trending up and down, who might be getting over or undervalued, and using that information to try to gauge what kind of number we might see on game day and what our market entry point is going to be. Okay, Edmonton BC kicks off week three on Thursday night. This will be the Lions home opener, and we do see them favored by five points right now at one of the minor books. Whether that number is the same when the market makers post their lines remains to be seen, but that does land right around where I suspected it would be. On the injury front, we're going to see the same story out of BC that we've got in the first two weeks of the season, and that is that Mike Riley was limited in practice. But based on the way he was zipping the ball on Thursday, it would be pretty surprising to see Nathan Rourke out there for the first series of the game. However, you never quite know when a guy might tweak something or have a bit of a setback, so don't take that one to the bank just yet. Elsewhere on the roster, receiver Lamar Durant was limited in practice on Monday, as were defensive backs TJ Lee and Gary Peters. In the case of Peters, that seems to be an ongoing thing, but he hasn't really looked too worse for wear out there on the field, so I'm not too concerned about that. And linebacker Bo Lacombo also limited on Monday. Riker Matthews remains a non-participant, as was another offensive lineman in Hunter Stewart. So BC potentially down two starting O-linemen, something to monitor closely as game day does approach. Edmonton looks like they might be getting Brian Walker back out of COVID protocol. Offensive lineman Kyle Saxlid was a full participant on Monday. Well, receiver Armonte Edwards was not at practice, so better news on the injury front for the Elks right now than the Lions. So obviously Edmonton is really under the gun here after looking so bad in their first two games. You start to lose sight of the pack pretty quickly if you drop to 0-3 in a 14-game season, so I do expect this team to come out and show some more fight in this one. 
But the question is, do they have the horses right now? And I'm honestly not sure that they do in the defensive backfield or at the quarterback position at this particular moment. The Lions passing attack under Riley has not been overly efficient, but they've found gaps in coverage downfield often enough to offset this with over 25% of attempts hitting for 10 plus yards. And I see no real reason why they wouldn't test this Edmonton secondary early in much the same manner as Montreal did last week. Lucky Whitehead has added a nice injection of speed to the receiving core. He's been a handful for teams so far on bubble screens and underneath stuff. And even if Durant isn't good to go, Brian Burnham, Dominic Rimes form a pretty good tandem that still gives BC plenty of options in the passing attack. The Elks' ability to slow down BC's passing game is going to hinge on how much pressure their front four can generate and whether or not they're able to hold the edge when Riley looks to escape the pocket. They did a fairly decent job of containing Vernon Adams on Saturday, so I would give this D-line the edge against a potentially shorthanded Lions O-line, but the guys behind them are still going to be hard-pressed to keep a blanket on several dangerous receiving threats. On the Elks side of the ball, they've leaned pretty heavily on James Wilder on first down, running on over 40% of first down snaps. And given Trevor Harris's struggles, I see no reason why Wilder won't continue to see plenty of touches, and he'll be running against a BC defensive front that hasn't been all that great against the run through two games, allowing opposing running backs a 56% success rate thus far. We knew coming into the season that the strength of the Lions' defense was their ball-hawking secondary, and they have delivered as advertised for the most part, keeping opposing offenses out of the end zone for over six consecutive quarters now. At Trevor Harris's present performance level, I do not like his chances of being able to stretch the field at all against this defense, and I could definitely foresee an interception or two if he remains out of sorts in the accuracy department. This is an ideal matchup to talk a little bit about special teams as well. BC has cut bait on Takeru Yamasaki as their place kicker after two poor showings, no surprise there. But we do have to keep in mind that the kicker coming off the practice roster is no guarantee to be an immediate upgrade. Right now, it isn't entirely clear who will be handling kicking duties, but whomever it is is not somebody I expect any of us to be familiar with, so we'll just have to wait and see. Taking a look at the respective return games, we haven't seen many big returns yet across the league so far, but the one exception to that was last week when Mario Walford victimized the Elks punt coverage team for a major, and if you remember back to week one, the Elks also got burned by the Red Blacks on a play that was eventually overturned for an illegal lateral pass that wasn't quite a lateral. BC will likely have Chris Rainey back there returning kicks, and the veteran has looked pretty sharp thus far, so I would not be surprised at all to see him bust one against a struggling cover team. BC's cover team themselves looked vulnerable at times last game, so if Terry Williams, one of Edmonton's big offseason acquisitions, is going to provide a spark in the return game after two disappointing efforts, this might be the opportunity. What does all this mean? Well, for me, it means I wouldn't touch Edmonton right now with a 10-foot pole unless we see something absolutely crazy like plus 9 or 10 appear on the board. And as far as a buy price on the Lions goes, I think as things stand right now, minus 6 is about the worst number I would consider taking. Playing Saturday night and having to travel for a Thursday game puts Edmonton in a tough spot as far as prep goes at a time when they really could have used those extra practice days. Meanwhile, BC has been sitting at home since Friday morning planning for this one, so I do like the spot here for the Lions. 
Those potential injuries on the O-line do concern me, as does the uncertain kicking situation. That would scare me off backing the Leos if a full touchdown is required, but if minus five does indeed end up being the opening number, I would lean towards making a play on that. As far as a total goes, this is a bit tricky with how low scoring things have been through two weeks across the board, but we are into week three now. Offenses should start to find a little bit more timing and rhythm. Defenses are going to start accumulating some bumps and bruises, and I think scoring is going to make a bit of an uptick. We're seeing some crazy low totals listed right now. Anything below 45 being extremely low by CFL standards. And I think this game in particular could be a pace setter of sorts for how the market treats the three remaining games on the schedule. Consider for this game that it'll be at BC Place, so weather is not going to be a factor. Kick returns appear likely to generate some good starting field position for the offenses. And you've got to think at some point we see some positive regression in terms of red zone efficiency. Edmonton struggles in the red zone, much talked about, of course, but BC has left a lot of points on the field themselves through two games. Uh, eventually, variance is going to come into play, and we're going to see some major scores. I mean, if we can get a number right around 45 or so, I, I would actually lean towards the over here uh, in, in spite of the deluge of unders the CFL has served up thus far. So, as I mentioned earlier, Bo Levi Mitchell will not be starting for the Stampeders on Friday night when they host the Alouettes at the stadium they so kindly named after yours truly. Or anytime soon, by the sounds of things, the broken bone in his leg was apparently suffered in the season opener against the Argonauts, which goes a long ways towards explaining his poor performance against BC. So the Stampeders will be turning to Michael O'Connor, another Canadian quarterback, now getting his chance to start. O'Connor is not a raw rookie, having seen some spot duty for the Argonauts towards the end of the 2019 season. But regardless, this is obviously a game changer for the Stampeders. As far as other injuries go, not a whole lot of other news in that department. O-lineman Ucombre Williams was limited in practice on Tuesday, while Julian Good-Jones apparently is dealing with an illness on the Calgary side. While Montreal did have Patrick Levels back on the practice field in a limited role, and offensive lineman Tony Washington could be a little banged up, but no indication yet that he won't be available on Friday. This is now shaping up to be a game that could possibly turn into a track meet, and I don't mean that in the traditional sense of receivers on deep fly routes, but rather I expect the running game for both teams to be leaned on heavily. Montreal ran by design on nearly 50% of snaps in their season opener, and that doesn't include Vernon Adams' scrambles, of which there were several. Now that is partly due to the Owls having a sizable lead throughout the second half, but regardless of the score, William Stanback should see plenty of the ball. Trying to stop him is going to be a big ask of a Calgary linebacking core that gave up several gashers last week against BC. Now, some of those were end-arounds that utilized Lucky Whitehead. Stanback is much more of a north-south runner, but this guy is a horseback there, and he can wear down a defense as good as anyone in this league. If Calgary has to put extra personnel into the box to limit that running attack, it's going to open up options for Vernon Adams downfield. So far, the Stampeders have done a pretty good job of keeping teams out of the end zone, but they have been giving up a high volume of those 15 to 20 yard chunk plays. And I think Montreal is going to have some success here moving the football. Whether Calgary is going to be able to match that with their own offense is somewhat doubtful in my mind. 
O'Connor looked all right in limited viewings, but unlike past years where we saw a guy like Nick Arbuckle slide into the starting role fairly effectively, Calgary just doesn't have those same playmakers available to prop up the rest of the offense. Herji Mayala and Josh Huff have both been pretty quiet through two games. I think we were all expecting a little bit more out of these guys based on the way they stepped up when injuries hit the snaps receiving core hard in 2019. And if they're not able to find some separation along with Kamar Jordan, it's going to be tough sledding against a fairly active Montreal secondary that is willing to gamble a little to create turnovers and was successful in doing so against the Elks last week. I'd expect Kadeem Carey and Antti Milanovic-Litre to both feature prominently in a Calgary run game that will need to take the bull by the horns, and I'm somewhat optimistic regarding their chances of having a big impact. The Alouettes were able to come up with a few stuffs in the season opener, but to my eye their tackling was somewhat lacking, and the few big plays the Elks were able to produce against them came from James Wilder runs. The pass rush was very effective, especially as the game wore on and you know they'll be coming after an inexperienced quarterback, but I do think there's some room here for Calgary to exploit that if the Owls get too aggressive. The Stamps like to run a lot of screens to carry, and those are the types of plays they'll need to hit on to keep the sticks moving and O'Connor upright. So let's look at the numbers here. We are seeing the Alouettes as slight favorites at some of the minor books right now, and truthfully, I expect this number to continue expanding as the week goes on. The market was a little sleepy on this Montreal team to open the season, but this is a quality football team in all areas. They're well coached under Kahari Jones, and with the Stampeders already on shaky ground and now without their best player, it's hard for me to fathom a scenario where the Owls aren't favored by at least a field goal by the time game day rolls around. The amount of running I expect to see would have me leaning towards the under on the total, which is currently listed at 45 where available. But truth be told, I wouldn't be shocked to see Montreal flirting with 30 points again. So I think the spread here is the safer play if you are of the mindset that Montreal holds the upper hand in this matchup. How much is too much? Well, normally if you open on one side of the key number of three, anything on the other side of that would see you giving up significant value compared to the opening number, which is not a good habit to get into if you want to be a successful better. But this is one of those cases where I really feel the Owls are mispriced, and I would be comfortable laying the points with them up to about four and a half. Okay, so I'm dropping this pod a day earlier than normal, but with the chaotic and inconsistent nature of when the major books are releasing their lines, I figured let's get this one out there a bit sooner. It being early Tuesday evening as I speak these words, I fully intend in breaking down the other two games in the next day or two as we get a little closer to kickoff and hopefully get some idea of where the market might be going. So stay tuned for that, but this will hopefully get us through the first two games of the week ready to take another round out of the bookies. It's tough to drop a best bet when I'm not entirely sure which numbers will be widely available, but for our Canadian listeners at least, Montreal minus two is currently available, and that is certainly a play I would not hesitate on. If the big boys don't drop a line on this game until Thursday or even Friday, I do not expect it will still be at this number. Minus three and a half seems much more likely, but we can always hope for a generous number, and we do sometimes get those in the CFL. So what I'll do is this. Let's split the difference and call out Alouettes minus three as the best bet for this week. Okay, guys, and maybe gals, I guess. I know my mom listens to these sometimes, so that's at least one female listener. 
That will do it for the first installment of Third Down Gamble for week number three. Again, if you want to get in touch, drop me a note at cflbettingpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks as always for listening, and we'll catch you again soon, hopefully with some Montreal minus three tickets in our pocket. Bye for now.